back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at one of the works of Philip K. Dick in the order of publication. And in this episode, I'll be beginning what I think will be a three-part series, maybe four, but, but more likely three, on, on Vulcan's Hammer. Vulcan's Hammer is often considered one of Dick's worst novels. Um, it was an early effort on this part. It actually was written way back in 1953, and I think it's actually the first science fiction novel he wrote, even though he published, you know, Solar Lottery first. This was actually published fairly late in his career. Uh, it pairs in interesting ways with Dr. Futurity in the sense that both those works are rather maligned. Both were written in 1953 and both were published in 1960. So they're they're also p- coming out in a time when Dick is trying to get away from science fiction and focusing on mainstream writing. And he's not going to really return to science fiction until, I guess I want to say, the game players of, of Titan, which I think was published in 1963. And you have the Man in the High Castle, but that's not really clearly science fiction to me. It's alternative history in a play. It's kind of a meta-analysis of shifting realities. And, and I've been talking about that theme a lot in some of the works he wrote in the late 50s. But this is kind of a throwback. And it actually pairs very nicely with Solar Lottery and Dr. Futurity and The World Jones Made and The Man Who Japed in the sense that in these novels, this set of novels, Dick is exploring political dystopias and different, imagining different types of political systems that could emerge what they mean, how to resist them. And, you know, there's some common themes here. For instance, both in The Man Who Japed and Vulcan's Hammer, you have an example of resistance from coming within the system rather than from outside the system. Um, so anyways, let's, let's, uh, let me just jump to my thematic analysis first. What, what I think the thematic significance of Vulcan's Hammer is and why I think this book, although often neglected by Philip Dick fans, often considered one of his worst. It's certainly not his most literary work. But in, a, in some ways, it has a lot more relevance to our current predicaments and our current political and, and questions than a lot of his other works that are more highly regarded. And I do think in general, a lot of Philip Dick fans focus on the metaphysical, focus on the religious, focus on those kind of mystical aspects of his writing, the things that really became clear later in his life, that Philip the exegesis, you know, even my first exposure to Philip Dick was that little documentary, it's only about a half hour long, but the gospel according to Philip K. Dick. And that's kind of how I initially approached him as well, with interest in some of these more, I guess, spiritual questions that he was exploring in some of his, especially later works, and in his Valis trilogy, even in the Mates of Death and, and some others. And those were like the first works I read. It wasn't until later that I went back to some of these early works. And I think in some of these early works, Dick's feet are much more firmly on the ground. He's much more concretely political, much more materialistic. And I, I think that shouldn't be neglected. I think the fact that Dick's career evolves over time doesn't mean we should, you know, say that that's like the true true Philip Dick and his early writings isn't aren't his true self, right? This is certainly my view of, of how we should look at his his views on the frontier. 
you know, he had this lot of optimism about the frontier early in his career. And that goes away by the mid-60s, especially in the 1970s, when you end up with more kind of a view of history as an eternal return. It doesn't undo the fact that he wrote all these novels and stories with a very optimistic view, view of the frontier. So Vulcan's Hammer is one of his most materialistic materialist novels. It's really focusing concretely with politics, political systems, and and how knowledge is used, I guess, by states. And it, it's very much a window into a, a functioning state. So I, I think there's, I just want to, I'll go into more detail about what I think the major themes of this novel are in the next episode and in the, in the final episode. But I really think there's three things that are talked about in this novel that are really important to us. And the first of these is the surveillance state. We have in this novel, a state that has almost complete knowledge of what everyone does. And this has huge effects on movements that resist the state. It has huge effects on the people who live in it. It has huge effects on education and almost every area of life gets affected by the fact that everyone lives in a totalitarian surveillance state. The second thing that's really important here is the question of big data, because what is special about this state is that it's run by a giant computer. And so data, knowledge collected by a computer system is a big part of it. And this is a big, this is how the system sustains control by collecting all this data and then processing it, right? Doing things that individual bureaucrats can't do, but things that computers can do. And this isn't the only time Dick considered the idea of a, of a state run by a robot. He, he did this in Last of the Masters. And I think that was maybe written around the same time as this novel, um, probably within a year or two of, of that novel, was that that story was written. Both deal with the question of, you know, what if a robot, what if a computer, what if a machine ran the state? Could it happen? What would be its weaknesses? What would be its goals? What would be its ambitions? All that. So, And I think that all feeds into some of our concerns about big data. And then finally, you have the question of automation. This is very much an automated economy. And again, this is not, this has been rehashed a lot. I've talked about automation a lot in this podcast, so I don't have to say too much about it now, but there's simply just a whole lot. Almost everything is automated in this world. And then the question that always comes from that is then what is left for people to do? In this case, the automation is focused more on state power and the state apparatus, which doesn't need as many people to really function. Like the core functions of the state are done by machines. And yeah, there are political agents and police and things in that have human functions, but they're not really that important. So everything kind of focuses in on the, the state or the, the automation of the state. So that that's what this novel is about. But uh, let's just jump into the plot a little bit, at least in the early chapters and see, you know, how Dick tells the story and what is he trying to get across in in this particular tale. So the novel opens with a mob attacking a government agent. The agent, now this government is called Unity. Um, Vulcan from Vulcan's Hammer is the name of like the machine, the computer is called Vulcan, Vulcan 3. Um, but the whole system is called Unity. And does this have any similarities to some of the other systems he creates in his early novels? No, I, I think one thing that's really fascinating about Dick here is he really is experimenting with different political forms. I think they're all quite distinct. Uh, relativism, uh, moral reclamation in 
the man who japed relativism was in the world Jones made. You have this kind of randomocracy in solar lottery. Um, you have kind of a social Darwinian, institutionalized social Darwinism in Dr. Futurity. So he's being quite creative, I think. And unity is something that's different in fundamental ways from, from all the others. Maybe it has something similar. Well, I almost want to say it has something similar to relativism, but it's on a very different foundation. In relativism, unity comes through a, a kind of a transcendence of political debates. And, and everyone has to agree to essentially disagree on politics and then just focus on stating truth, what can be scientifically proven. Unity, I guess, is the more standard kind of idea of creating a state in which everyone is a participant in a, a socially stable way, the, the system. So there's a lot more focus here on deviance, on the dangers of, of outside opinions and, and diversity. Anyways, our government agent who's being attacked by a mob, the mob is called the healers and they're the, the anti-unity folks. He's basically returning to his car on his way home. He, he, work, he lives in Cedar Grove, Alabama in, in the American South while he's under attack by this mob and he calls his superior, who's the, the Southern American director, Taubman. That's, and he's asking for, he asks for help, he asks for aid. And he's instructed to collect information for Vulcan 3, uh, who is the, the robot that essentially runs the government. And then he's supposed to wait for help. The mob becomes increasingly violent, throwing rocks. Pitt eventually panics, but the instructions he received insist on collecting more information about the mob and what's happening. Because Vulcan, Vulcan 3 as a system relies on knowledge. This is how it understands how the world works. And this becomes then a major way in, in which people can resist or challenge or undermine Vulcan 3 is by preventing it from have, having certain knowledge. So there's this insistence early on that Vulcan 3 depends on as much information as possible. It, it depends essentially on big data. Pitt is eventually killed by the mob before the help arrives. So later, William Barris studies, he's another state agent, he's studying the photo uh, photograph of a man named Father Fields, who is the leader of the healers movement. Fields himself is a quite an amazing fig figure. He has survived two months at the Atlanta Psychological Correction Labs without being cured. And this is apparently very unnatural uh, or uncommon. Usually people are quote unquote corrected. This isn't the first time Dick has associated uh, like psych psychological therapy with political deviance. He did this a lot in The Man Who Japed where people who don't fit into the social order are are seen as mentally ill and therefore subject to psychological correction, not necessarily just sent to a prison camp, but sent rather for psychological counseling and repair. And that's certainly the case here. In fact, it's more well-developed here than, than I think in, in A Man Who Japed. So Barris discusses uh, Fields, this, this rebel. He also discussed the death of Pitt with Taubman. And we learn that the healers movement wants to crush Vulcan III. But Vulcan 3 has also made no proclamations about the healer movement or really any other proclamations in months. Vulcan 3, essentially the government, the state, has, has been pretty quiet. And there's a lot of concern among the bureaucracy and among these various agents of the state, of Vulcan, of the unity government, that the silence of Vulcan 3 might be a sign that something is wrong. Barris uh, begins to call or calls the Atlantic Psychological Corrections Lab 
but then changes his mind, and instead he calls unity control. And he requests emergency meeting, essentially emergency request to Vulcan 3. He's told that there's a three-day wait, and he asks to speak to a man named the director, Jason Dill, who is another high-ranking official in the unity government, but he's also stymied in that effort to talk to Dill. Resigned to the three-day wait before being able to consult Vulcan himself, he prepares two questions for Vulcan 3. And what they do is they ask specifically about the healer's movement and why Vulcan 3 is not responding to them. And then he writes a personal letter of condolences and sympathy to Pitt's wife. Now, the two questions are, quote, are the healers of real significance? And two, why don't you respond to their existence? That's, that's all. So apparently when you have these kind of meetings with, with Vulcan, with Vulcan 3, you can only give very specific questions that it can answer based on its understanding of, of the data it is it has collected. So next we have a nice little scene in a schoolroom. I always like when Dick explores education and thinks about education. He It's actually on his mind quite a lot. He does it probably most effectively in Martian Time Slip. But in a lot of his stories, he talks about education. And this novel has a little bit of it here. It's a bit contrived, but I just... You know, I think it's interesting that that Dick does focus so much on this question of of education. And, you know, I, I think he's the first writer I came across that plays with the idea of automated education or, or robots being the educators and how that might even be better. I, I think that's especially in, in Martian time slip. Here we just have a standard primary school classroom. Uh, the teacher is Agnes Parker, and she's teaching the class about the history of the emergence of unity and the unity government. Now, this has basically an expository role for the reader. Let's just get the history. So after a nuclear war in 1992, the Lisbon laws were passed, which gave governing authority to Vulcan 3. There was two previous Vulcan computers that were made in the 1970s. And Parker is very careful in how she presents this history because she knows that Vulcan 3 had inquiries about the teaching in school. So it's something Vulcan 3 is interested in and collecting data on. Now, Jason Dill, who was talked about in the previous chapter, but he finally shows up here. He's the managing director of, of Unity, and he's deeply connected to Vulcan 3, and he actually interacts with Vulcan 3 quite regularly. He visits the classroom during this lecture. Parker notices how common he looks, despite his lofty position in the Unity system. Now, Dill starts to take over the class, and basically, you know, he comes in as court of the expert, and a girl stands up and questions him about the morality of the unity system. So she's a really amazing young woman. I mean, it's a primary school, so it's just a girl, really, who's challenging this authority figure. Again, that's kind of contrived, I suppose. It's a bit unbelievable. But it, it has a role in the story in that it really sets up this character and her, you know, and her background ends up being very important. So basically, the girl's criticism of unity is that it takes away human agency and created this mechanical overpowering guardian over humanity. So humanity has surrendered its authority over its own future and its own destiny to a machine. Dill is uh, rather embarrassed by the challenge that he faces by this girl, but he kind of takes it in stride and he seems, you know, he kind of, he has the politically correct answers to these questions. But Dill plays a game in which the entire class points out the girl as an enemy in an effort to prove the power of unity. So he kind of says that 
you know, whatever, like individual agency is fine and dandy, but unity is much more effective at actually getting things done and, you know, identif identifying troublemakers and keeping social order. So outside of the classroom, Dill assures Parker that she doesn't need to worry about her job because Agnes Parker was really paranoid. Like, first of all, the, the boss comes in to watch my class. Second, he sees this upstart girl challenging authority and challenging the system. Dill says, don't, don't worry about it. I'll take the girl. Now, the girl, it turns out, is Marion Fields, who's the daughter of Father Fields, this man who was arrested and put in the psychological correction, but did not change his views after enduring that. He says, I'll take the girl, put her under my care. Parker readily agrees. She wants this troublemaker gone herself. But Parker, and the end chapter ends, this chapter two ends with Parker feeling that she's being watched and she thinks she's going to end up in Atlanta pretty soon. So the next chapter is about the interactions between Dill and Marion Fields. So there's a bit of a extension of the classroom dynamic in chapter three as these two kind of sit down and talk about her father and talk about her views and and jason dill is trying to kind of push her over to accepting unity he brings mary into the unity control building one of the central buildings of the system or of the bureaucracy he talks to her about her antisocial behavior and her hostility towards unity Dill sees her as precocious, but perhaps too influenced by her dissident father, and he's not really at this point willing to give up on her. And he kind of seduces her in interesting ways. He seduces her with friendship and play. He says, for instance, this way you won't be lonely because there's lots of nice people who work here with, who have children of their own, girls of their own, and they'll be glad to bring their children by so you can have someone to play with. Won't that be nice? And later on, he says, I don't think you're such a troublemaker as you pretend. I think you should you worry too much. You should be like other children, play more healthy outdoor games. Don't do so much thinking off by yourself. Isn't that what you do? Go off by yourself somewhere and brood? So Dill is really trying to use society and the, the intense draw of society to try to get Marion to accept unity. And how often do we do this? How often do we suppress our individual feelings and desires and opinions just for day-to-day -day social stability. It's not necessarily we really believe in social stability as an ultimate goal in kind of a political sense, but, you know, we, we might suppress certain views, right? Maybe we're a vegetarian and our friends invite us to a steakhouse and we quietly have, I don't know what you can get at a steakhouse, but we, we don't make an issue of our vegetarianism, right? We, we simply enjoy the meal with our friends, even though we make a, maybe a private choice not to eat meat. You know, that kind of, th those are ways we are doing what Dill is suggesting here, that we just go along with the flow, except, and, and so I think there's a parallel here between the unity proclaimed by the government and as a kind of a social governing ideology, and then the unity we all embrace day to day in our, in our lives, just to maintain social connections, right? If we don't do that to some degree, we're not going to have any friends and we're not going to have any social network. We're not going to have a job and our life will be pretty miserable. But he finally gets to the point, though, that this is an interrogation. And he begins to ask her for information about Fields' whereabouts since he escaped the Atlanta Clinic. He also asks her if Fields, Father Fields, has a connection to the healers movement. He explains to her that the term healers is basically akin to quack doctors who promise a cure that they cannot honestly provide. In fact, the term healer does have this connotation, right? You're 
doctor or a healer, right? If you give a choice, do you go to the doctor for your to have your cancer treated or go to the healer, right? It, it seems the healer is the, the more dubious approach, right? And this is something that Dill points out that, you know, the healer is the name we've traditionally given to frauds and opportunists. And he eventually does show Marion a report about the death of Arthur Pitt. And then so he comes to violence. And he says, so this is the end result of your movement of the healers or Father Field's movement is, is violence and death and suffering. He eventually leaves Marion Fields in custody. And Jason Dill makes a visit to Vulcan 2. And he submits some questions to the aging computer. So we learn something at the end of this chapter. And that is Vulcan 2 lives. And Vulcan 2 is is actually there in the compound and it's not completely shut down. It wasn't fully replaced. It's still there doing its job. Vulcan 3 has the, the basic functions of government, but Vulcan 2 is still there as a consultant. Now, why is it? What's the use of an obsolete computer when you have a better one? And this is a question that will be answered later on in the novel. So we jump back to that other agent, the one who was writing the letter to Pitt's wife, William Barris. And he actually goes all the way to visit the home of Arthur Pitt. And Arthur Pitt lived in an upscale community in the Sahara, it seems. He claims to be visiting to send official regards to Mrs. Rachel Pitt, the widow. The guards at the building question him, but eventually let him enter. Rachel Pitt talks about, you know, life in this development. This It's kind of like the logical conclusion of suburbia, right? I think Dick must have had in his mind the extension of suburbia into like the Sunbelt areas and into the, the Southwest and Nevada, basically making communities out of deserts. And when he was thinking of putting this kind of suburban development in the, in the Sahara Desert. The development, though, is mostly full of opportunistic young wives of unity officials. Rachel, maybe sarcastically, maybe seriously, mentions that she's going to join the healers. And she says she believes that Arthur Pitt was not killed due to a healer mob, but rather as a result of conflicts within the unity bureaucracy itself. She is sure that someone at the level of director must have been involved in the plot. And basically, she thinks it's, it was done to prevent Pitt's rise to power because Pitt was an upwardly mobile agent. Now, after hearing this, Barris returns to North America and he's, he reflects on any worries about and he's a bit anxious about Rachel Pitt's accusa accusations and her threat to join the healers movement. He's mostly worried, though, about the suggestion that maybe maybe she's right. Maybe Pitt was actually knocked out by the state, right, by it or an agency in the state or maybe Vulcan himself itself. Maybe. You know, if, if she's right, this may explain the inaction of unity against the healers. Perhaps the healers have infiltrated unity. So one thought he has is maybe it's just the healers are already in government and have already kind of corrupted unity and took over Vulcan 3. Or the other option is that maybe they're being used by officials in unity for some other purpose. He fears that discussing this further with Rachel Pitt might lead to psychological problems. Meanwhile, though, Marion Fields, the girl, is in her quarters when Jason Dill enters, and he demands to know why the healers destroyed Vulcan 2. Marion only, only accuses him of being paranoid, and Dill suggests it's necessary since the entire world is against him and against the Unity system itself. Now, this grade school kid is a little bit too smart here. She, so Dill walks in and 
he's freaking out because Vulcan 2's been destroyed. He says, what? What happened to the old commuter? She demanded, avid with curiosity. Did it blow up? How'd you know somebody did it? Maybe it just burst. Wasn't it old? All her life she had read about, heard about, been told about Vulcan 3. It was a historic shrine like the museum that had been in Washington, D.C., except that all the children were taken to the Washington Museum to walk up and down the streets and roam the great silent office buildings, but no one had ever seen Vulcan 2. Can I look? Please let me look. If it blew up, it isn't any good anymore, is it? Then why can't I see it? And then Dill turns to the question, back to the interrogation, where's your father? Are you in contact with him? And then she, that's when he, she says, like, why are you so paranoid? And he says, like, the whole world is out to get us. The whole world is against us. And so despite the philosophy of unity, despite the language of unity, in fact, the system is presented here as profoundly, deeply unstable um, by one of its most important leaders. So then uh, we get to chapter five. Jason Dill goes back to the ruins of Vulcan II, was destroyed. He's puzzled why the healers would want to destroy the old computer. Vulcan 3 has all the power. Vulcan 3 is in control of government. But what it does show is that the healers have infiltrated unity. So Dill comes to the same conclusion that Barris seemed to have already come to, that maybe unity or the healers have, have entered unity and taken it over. The data fee technician for, for Vulcan 3, his name is Larson, gives Dill the questions that Barris submitted. Dill thinks about using Barris for propaganda purposes due to his humble origins. Larson tells Dill that some other managing directors have submitted similar queries to Vulcan 3 about the healers movement and basically questioning why Vulcan 3 hasn't really issued any orders or policies to, to deal with the, the healer movement. Jason Dill then examines the official and unofficial files on Barris, basically looking for some embarrassing or compromising accusation, something that will undermine his career and let him you know, get rid of Barris, who he starts to see as possibly a threat, maybe connected to the healers. The only thing he can find is a letter written by a woman's hand accusing Barris of being in the pay of the healers. So Dill then rejects the formal questions to Vulcan 3 on a technicality, and instructs the police secretary to begin a formal investigation of Barris. Now, meanwhile, Agnes Parker is having dinner with her colleagues. Agnes Parker was the teacher, Marion Fields' teacher. And she hides a copy of the banned book Lolita and walks to Marion Fields' old door room. When she enters the room, an automated weapon kills her. So that takes us about a third of the way through this novel. As you can see, it's not a very long novel at all. It's in my edition, I think it's only maybe 130 pages. In my edition, I have the the version that's uh, bound with The Man Who Japed and Dr. Futurity under the title Philip K. Dick's Three Early Novels. And Vulcan's Hammer is the third one here, and it's only 140 pages or so. So it's really, it's really short. It's a really a quick read. Um, and it really gets into the plot very quickly. It's very plot-focused. There's not really a lot of philosophy in this novel outside of the political questions of, you know, what's the relationship between the individual and society, between the individual and unity? Is it possible to be an individual in a system like unity? And then this whole issue of automated governance, I think, is something that is kind of fascinating. And Dick is going to go into some more detail on all these issues in the, in the rest of the novel. So I'll kind of leave it at that. Um, Another thing I think I want to point out here is that Dick doesn't often do movements of resistance. Like if you think of the man who japed, 
the only resistance comes from one person within the government, essentially. And yeah, he gets there's those like weirdos living in Hokkaido, kind of digging up old pornographic novels and vulgar crime novels. But you know, those weren't movements. This novel and then another novel that has kind of a movement culture described, a movement of resistance, is our friends from Full Locks Eight. I think that's I think it's eight, or is it six? Yeah, it's our friends from Full X Eight. That, that's not written till nineteen. We're not published till nineteen seventy. But that deals with the movement culture, and you have a little bit in Radio Free Albemuth, and Vallis has a little bit of that too. But it's it's not something Dick's very comfortable with. Actually, is is kind of a revolutionary movement. Um, but we have one here in the Healers movement. We don't know that much about them yet, but we will learn more about the movement and their tactics and their strategy. And you know, that's it. I, I guess I'll kind of leave it at that point and I'll come back in the next episode and, and go into a little bit more of, of my feeling on some of the themes Dick is exploring this novel and, and look at the second third of the novel. So I, I, think, I'll, I think I'll do this novel in three three episodes. I won't, I won't take four. So anyways, uh, thanks so much for listening. If you have any of your own opinions about Vulcan's Hammer, please leave them below or you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com please do subscribe to this channel um, and, and and share your thoughts about about philip k dick and these these works so once again thanks for listening i'll be back next time with part two of my review of vulcan's hammer my tired thoughts That leaving dies, that leaving dies.